At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 16, KGB, 1917 to 1950. So typically for our show, I don't often discuss sources, but since we're dealing with clandestine operations, uh, some of what I'm about to share might be shocking, especially if you attended high school and or college before the early to mid-2000s. If you did attend high school, as I did in the late 1990s, you might remember the debate around the second Red Scare McCarthyism, and the execution of the Rosenbergs. The left and the right bitterly argued about the extent of communist infiltration in government, and the left decried the period as a right-wing witch hunt. This episode, of course, is not about the Second Red Scare or McCarthy, although I will be covering it in a later episode. Nevertheless, this episode will examine this subject indirectly. Therefore, I thought it appropriate to outline my sources for this episode. The four secondary sources that I use are listed on the website and based off the Viona Papers and the McTrocken Archive. The Viona Papers were a counterintelligence program initiated by the U.S. to decrypt the intelligence traffic of the Soviet Union. These messages weren't declassified to the U.S. public until 1995. And of course it took a few years more for historians to comb through the documents and make some sense of them in a historical context. The other major primary source used in these secondary sources is the Mitrokhin Archive. A Soviet archivist, Vasily Mitrokhin, uh, working in the KGB archive, defected to the United Kingdom with thousands of files he had pilfered and copied, uh, many of which dated back to the 1930s. Working with the historian Christopher Andrew, they published a two-volume set in 1999, The Sword and the Shield, uh, which you can check out on, on the website as well. So enough with this bibliographical review. Let's jump into the show. The two other housekeeping items before we get started. Uh, one, although I will be covering a lot of KGB history, there is no way I could cover everything in detail. There's a ton of material out there. Second, I know the KGB was not always called the KGB. It went through several name changes and became the KGB officially in 1954. However, for simplicity and Google optimization, I used KGB so most people would know what I was talking about. This episode will cover the origins of the KGB and Soviet intelligence during its golden years up to about 1950. As the series progresses, I will have additional episodes about the KGB in later periods. The KGB was originally known as the Cheka. The Cheka was created in December 1917 by Lenin and led by Felix Straczynski, a Polish aristocrat turned communist. He had been a professional revolutionary for over 20 years, spending 11 of those years in czarist prisons, penal servitude, or exile. I have a picture of him on the website. In the coming years, his statue would be placed in front of the notorious Lubyanka KGB headquarters. Today, the building houses the successors to the KGB, the FSB. 
The Cheka also adopted the famed symbol of the KGB and the current FSB, the sword and the shield. The shield to defend the revolution and the sword to smite its foes, both of which you can see on the website as well. Draczynski and the Cheka learned much of its tradecraft from the Tsar's predecessor, the Orkana, or the Department of Protecting Public Security and Order established in 1881, which was basically a secret police force for the Tsarist Empire formed to combat political terrorism and left-wing revolutionary activity both domestically and covertly in other countries, hunting down the enemies of the Tsar. From the Orkana, the Cheka learned the use of agent provocateurs, the use of undercover assets, cryptology, and interrogation. The Cheka was also greatly influenced by the history of the Bolshevik Party as well. Much of the Bolshevik leadership had become accustomed to living under assumed names and multiple identities. Many of them as well had lived overseas and engaged in lives of crime to support themselves and the party living on the run. Qualities of great value to the Cheka. Much of the Cheka's early priorities were overwhelmingly domestic as the new Soviet state quickly found itself fighting for survival in the Russian Civil War. The Cheka set out to terrorize the regime's opponents, becoming famed for its brutality. In Vronensk, uh, naked prisoners were rolled around in barrels studded with nails. In Poltova, priests were impaled, whereas in Kiev, cages of rats were fixed to victims' bodies and heated until the rats gnawed their way into the victims' intestines. The Cheka did, however, quickly form an intelligence capability as agents operating under false identities were sent out into white-controlled areas to gather information and report back to Moscow. By June 1919, the number of these, quote, illegals was sufficient to organize its own department, Directorate S. The Cheka also took its first steps into foreign intelligence collection. On January the 4th, 1918, Lenin publicly pr- recognized the independence of Finland, formerly part of the Tsarist Empire. Nevertheless, with the help of the Cheka, Lenin set about undermining Finnish independence by supporting a communist coup there, which was put down by Finnish forces aided by the Germans. By December 1920, a new foreign intelligence department was organized, the INO. During these early years, the Soviet Union was an international pariah with few embassies or consulates. For those of you who may not be familiar, most nations run their spies out of their embassies disguised as embassy personnel. Lacking embassies, the Soviet intelligence became familiar with establishing foreign illegal residences or safe houses to operate from. In the West, the Soviets benefited from a pool of ideological foreign recruits who identified with the Marxist cause. The Soviets also benefited greatly from local communist parties that helped supply the Cheka and the future KGB with intelligence and suitable recruits to infiltrate local governments. As we will see, the American Communist Party was extremely helpful to the NKVD. The Communist Party needed little encouragement to work with Soviet intelligence. They hated the U.S. government, especially after the first Red Scare from 1917 to 1921, which we spoke about in Episode 2. The Justice Department had arrested a few communist and anarchist party members, and the government tried to deport thousands more. Nevertheless, for decades, many liberal journalists and historians argued that American Communist Party members were loyal American citizens, persecuted for their beliefs. However, we now know with the Viona papers and archival documents that was not the case. Their loyalty was to the Soviet Union, and many worked as spies for the Soviet cause. This was not a complete surprise, though, to the FBI and MI5. Many had long suspected local communist parties of collaborating with Soviet intelligence. 
In the early to mid-1920s, INO's chief target became whites, codenamed Polkats, and Mensheviks who had moved overseas based mainly in Berlin, Paris, and Warsaw. The NKVD did suffer setbacks, though. In spring 1927, Polish authorities broke up a spy ring in Warsaw. In March, another Soviet spy was uncovered in Turkey, and the Swiss police announced the arrest of two Soviet spies. In April, a police raid in Beijing uncovered a mass of incriminating intelligence documents, and the French broke up a Soviet spy ring in Paris. This was followed in May by the arrest of an Austrian foreign minister who had been passing documents to the Soviets and the breakup of a Soviet spy ring in London. To make Soviet espionage less detectable and more deniable, the main responsibility for intelligence gathering was moved from Soviet embassies to illegal residences. The establishment of these safe houses and training of illegal residences became a time-consuming task involving years of detailed training and construction of elaborate backstories and false identities. Domestically, the Cheka, renamed the NKVD, focused on counter-revolutionaries or perceived threats to the Soviet regime, such as Ukrainian nationalists who had fought the Soviets to establish an independent Ukraine, uh, and they also persecuted Jewish Zionists, codenamed Rats, who wanted to reestablish the, Jew the Jewish state in Palestine. By the 1930s, the Politburo ordered the INO to focus their foreign intelligence resources on Great Britain, France, and Germany, with secondary priority focusing on Poland, Romania, Finland, the Baltic states, and Japan. Although Cheka agents had been deployed to America in 1921, it remained a sideshow in Soviet espionage because of its isolationism. The NKVD also set about increasing the number of agents in illegal residences in the target countries, with each safe house holding up to seven agents and in some cases nine. Illegals had to endure long training periods designed to establish their false identities, protect their cover, and prepare them for operations in the West. Despite the many ideological recruits the Soviets had, a significant number of sources uh, that were motivated to spy for money and or sex. The British Embassy staff, for example, in St. Petersburg, were offered $1,000 or about $17,000 in today's money uh, to steal the embassy's main cipher. Despite the NKVD's ability to collect an extensive amount of rich intelligence, the Soviets lacked the ability to properly analyze the information they collected. The combination of conspiracy theory, Marxist ideology, and Stalin's own paranoia left most Soviet intelligence uh, gathered unactionable. Stalin actively discouraged intelligence analysis by others as dangerous guesswork. He is reported to have said, quote, Don't think to tell me what you think. Give me the facts and the sources, close quote. Invariably, Stalin was surrounded by yes-men and people who hid information from him that might anger Stalin. During this period, though, the Soviets recruited their greatest spy network, the Cambridge Five, who passed information to the Soviet Union during World War II and was active in, at least into the early 1950s. The term Cambridge refers to the recruitment of the group during their education at the University of Cambridge. Soviet intelligence officer Arnold Deutsch uh, met with Cambridge University graduate Harold Kim Philby in 1934 and recruited the young graduate as someone who could infiltrate the British government. Kim quickly identified other potential recruits, and in short order, Deutsch managed to sign up four more Cambridge men, uh, Donald McLean, uh, Guy Burgess, Anthony Blunt, and John Crancross. All were dedicated communists and demanded no financial compensation for their espionage service. In time, this strategy of recruiting young, disaffected members of British, the British elite would yield rich rewards.
The Cambridge Five quickly obtained key positions in the British government and intelligence apparatus, including SIS, or MI6 Foreign Intelligence, MI5 Domestic Security, and the Foreign Office. Indeed, Philby's name was floated as a possible director of MI6. Over the next couple of decades, the Five did immense damage to British and Western security. Through Cane Cross, Moscow learned of Anglo-American efforts to build an atomic bomb in 1941. McLean and Burgess, both working for the Foreign Office, gave the Soviets priceless documents on American strategy in the Korean War. And as a liaison between SIS and U.S. intelligence in Washington, Philby knew of and betrayed to Moscow Project Viona, the American effort to break encoded Soviet diplomatic messages. Indeed, it was Viona that brought down the five. As Philby learned, the Americans had decoded a Soviet message that referenced McLean. He warned the latter Burgess, uh, but when Burgess and McLean defected to Moscow in 1951, suspicion was cast on the remaining three. Philby and Crancross were forced to retire. Crancross moved to southern France, while Philby joined his fellow spies in Moscow in 1963. Blunt eventually confessed uh, against a grant of immunity and stayed in England. I will be having another episode that deals specifically with the Cambridge Five. However, there were failures or dead ends when it came to collecting intelligence as well, one of which was U.S. Congressman Samuel Dickstein. A Lithuanian Jew, he had immigrated to the United States with his family in 1885 when he was six. His family settled in Manhattan's Lower East Side, which Dixon would later represent in Congress. After receiving a law degree in 1906, he served as the Deputy State Attorney General and was elected to the State Assembly two years later. In 1923, he was elected to Congress as a Democrat, where he would serve 11 terms. Dickstein's congressional focus would be on immigration issues. During the 1930s, though, his interest turned to the investigation of pro-Nazi and fascist groups moving to America, a major concern of the American Jewish community at that time. Ironically, liberal Dickstein introduced the legislation to create the House Committee on Un-American Activities, or HUAC, to help uncover pro-Nazi networks. However, he didn't receive a seat on the new committee. HUAC would become big later in the Second Red Scare, and we will be examining it in future episodes. It's not clear how or why Dick Stein became involved with the NKVD, but it appears he started working with them in 1937. First, by getting an illegal Austrian who was a Soviet agent through immigration into the U.S. He also became involved with selling passports and smuggling illegal people into the country. Per NKVD records, Dick Stein wanted to work with the Soviet, uh, Soviets against fascism, but the NKVD field agents believed that he was a crook, which subsequently became his codename. Moscow, however, believed he could be a real asset, but the relationship became fraught with arguments. Dick Stein and his handler constantly argued about the price and value of secret information. Dick Stein demanded 2500 a month, but the NKVD was only willing to pay him 500 a month. In the end, most of the information he provided was deemed worthless, and his handler thought the 500 a month figure completely unjustified. By 1940, the NKVD realized that Dick Stein's only real value was giving pro-Soviet speeches in Congress, for which he was paid $500 to $1,000 for. During the 1930s, the NKVD also began to monitor the activities of pro-fascist groups and individuals. William Randolph Hearst, the newspaper tycoon, was one such individual as his papers had anti-Soviet views. By the late 1930s, the Soviets had bigger enemies than newspaper men and fascist groups to worry about. By the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War in 1936, the NKVD found itself engaged in a two-sided civil war. 
against Trotskyites within the Spanish Republic and international brigades, as well as fighting against Franco and the Nationalists. The NKVD quickly established training camps outside of Paris, Valencia, and Barcelona to train and equip Republican forces against Nationalists. Outside of Spain, France became the main theater of operations for the NKVD as forces and resources were based there to aid in the Spanish struggle. By 1938, the NKVD had become the sixth largest Soviet foreign intelligence group with 212 illegal officers operating in 16 countries. However, with the beginning of Stalin's Great Terror, the NKVD began to cannibalize itself. If you recall, Stalin began a purge of the Communist Party, the military, and the NKVD itself of any perceived threats to Stalin's control of the country. Most of the illegal Soviet officers were called home and purged during this period, and many of the illegal residencies ceased to operate. Those that did, such as London, Berlin, Vienna, and Tokyo, had gone from eight or nine officers to one or two. Many sources were left in the dark, unable to pass information and, cl and clues as to what was happening in the Soviet Union. Many more Soviet sources became disillusioned as well when the Soviet Union signed a non-aggression pact, the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, in 1939. Many sources had been drawn to the Soviets as they saw the Soviet Union as the only force capable of standing up to fascism. Moreover, many asked, how could the Soviet Union sign such a pact with a regime like Nazi Germany, which was totally antithetical to the Marxist worldview? A few sources in the West were so sickened by this arrangement that they stopped working with the Soviets and broke their connections. One such example was Michael Strait. Strait was a wealthy young convert to communism recruited from Cambridge again. Strait's parents were friends with the Roosevelts. With the president's help, he got a job at the National Resources Board and later the State Department. With these connections, Strait had a bright future in government and would be a great source if, if cultivated correctly. However, the Nazi-Soviet pact angered Strait and he refused to aid the Soviets any further and resigned from his position at the State Department. He also gave up his belief in the progressive nature of communism and the Soviet Union. During the late 1930s, the hunt for enemies of the people replaced the collection of intelligence, culminating in the, with the Trotsky assassination. Trotsky, if you remember from earlier episodes, had been a leading figure in the 1917 revolution and had commanded the Red Army to victory in the Russian Civil War. In 1924, Lenin died and a power struggle ensued for leadership of the Soviet Union. Stalin won this struggle and eventually had Trotsky exiled from the Soviet Union in 1929. Trotsky, after living throughout Europe, was eventually given asylum in Mexico in 1936, settling with his family in a suburb of Mexico City. Back in the Soviet Union, however, he was found guilty of treason and abstentia during Stalin's purges. The Soviets initially tried to machine gun Trotsky's car but failed to hit him. Stalin then handed the operation over to the NKVD. The NKVD attempted to storm the compound in May 1940 but was fought off by Trotsky's guards. The NKVD had a backup plan, though. One of their agents, under a false identity, Mornard, had cultivated a friendship with Trotsky and his guards, sharing similar political views and talking about trivial matters. One day in August 1940, while drinking tea and chatting, he took his chance. He used an ice pick axe intended for mountain climbing to hack a hole into Trotsky's skull, but the revolutionary wouldn't die without a fight. He apparently grappled with Menard, shouted for help, and even spat in his face and bit his hand during the altercation. Menard was beaten by Trotsky's guards and taken to prison. Trotsky was removed from the scene of the crime and operated on, but he died some 24 hours after the attack. 
Munard was tried claiming he had murdered Trotsky because he would not allow him to marry a woman he loved. He served 20 years in prison under the assumed identity, though a secret counterintelligence project finally rever- revealed his name as Mercator. Uh, while the Soviet Union denied any involvement in the murder of Trotsky, Mercator moved to the Soviet Union after his release and was eventually given an award for being a hero of the Soviet Union. I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to share the show on social media or tell your friends to check us out or give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. Christmas is around the corner, and if you're looking for a great gift for a friend or loved one who is into history or spies, I would recommend picking up the book Sword and Shield by Christopher Andrew. If you like the subject of this episode and you want to learn a a ton of details more about the history of the KGB, this is the book for you. It's 665 pages of small print, and I don't know of a more detailed history of the KGB. If you buy the book through the website, the proceeds help the show, and it doesn't cost you anything more. So if you want to check out uh, our book selection or donate, the website is www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. One word. We greatly appreciate your support in helping to keep the show going. Now back to the show. After Stalin's pact with Hitler, he expanded the Soviet Empire by conquering eastern Poland in September 1939, followed by the Baltic states and Moldavia in the summer of 1940. In these conquered lands, the NKVD was given the task of liquidating class enemies and beating the local population into submission, leading to the deaths of thousands. By 1940, with most of its illegals dead and the death of Trotsky, the purges came to an end, and the center began the process of rebuilding its foreign intelligence network. They established their first intelligence training school 15 miles east of Moscow in the woods to train new recruits. It drew its recruits from the party and from the university graduates from the top Soviet universities. Since most of the recruits at this point had come up in the Soviet system, they had experienced cramped squat living conditions of crowded apartment blocks, collective farms, and army barracks. Therefore, they had to be trained about life in the West and high society, along with tradecraft, so that they could be trained to live overseas for years at a time. The training included four hours a day on foreign language training, two hours on tradecraft, with additional lectures on communism, history, diplomacy, philosophy, religion, fashion, good taste, and painting, a mix of topics to accustom them to Western bourgeois culture and to reinforce their belief in the communist cause. During this period, newspapers also became a target for the NKVD, not only because of their access to government sources for stories, but also their ability to spin a story and to build a larger narrative around events. One of their main targets in the U.S. was Walter Lippmann, Lippmann was a famous and well-respected political commentator and was on the Council of Foreign Relations for a time, the most influential magazine in U.S. foreign policy. The NKVD had one of its agents, a secret communist reporter, meet with him regularly to speak about American and international politics. Eventually, the NKVD would even plant a spy in his office as one of his secretaries. The most important information that the NKVD discovered in the early 1940s was about Operation Barbarossa, or Hitler's plan to invade the Soviet Union. Two separate spy networks were reported that Germany was preparing for an invasion. Similar intelligence warnings came from sources in China and Japan. Later, KGB historians counted over 100 warnings to Stalin that the Germans were preparing to attack, but Stalin refused to believe any of these sources. Churchill and the British had also warned him of the impending invasion. Even the German ambassador to the Soviet Union, Count von Schlusenberg, 
informed the Soviets that Hitler had decided to invade Russia, explaining the reason for his informing the Soviets was that he was fundamentally he fundamentally agreed with Bismarck's policy that a war with with a German war with Russia was a mistake. Stalin, however, was much more suspicious about Churchill than he was about Hitler. Churchill had been railing against the Soviet Union and communism since the October Revolution. Stalin believed that Churchill was merely trying to incite a war between Germany and the Soviet Union to save Great Britain from the certain defeat against Germany in World War II. Nevertheless, to Stalin's surprise and disbelief, Hitler invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941. The German panzers cut deep into the Soviet Union, encircling and destroying whole Soviet armies. The Soviet Union was on the brink of annihilation, with the Germans making it to the outskirts of Moscow. Yet, the NKVD was vital in turning the tide. The NKVD, like the Americans a year earlier, had broken the Japanese diplomatic code, Purple. Therefore, the Soviets were reassured that Japan did not intend to invade the Soviet Union from the east. This allowed the Soviets to move desperately needed men and supplies to their western front, helping to save Moscow and halting the Nazi advance. The NKVD was also given the task of securing rare areas for the Red Army by arresting deserters, protecting against enemy agents, defending communication lines, and eliminating isolated pockets of German resistance. During the Battle of Stalingrad, for example, 13,500 soldiers were shot for defeatism. Many times before their execution, they were ordered to strip naked so their uniforms and boots could be reused. The NKVD also helped organize guerrilla warfare behind enemy lines and captured Soviet territory. Most famously, the NKVD operated a guerrilla force out of the Black Sea port of Odessa during the 907-day occupation of the city, basing itself in the catacombs. Per KGB records, the NKVD ran 2,222 operational combat groups behind enemy lines during the Great Patriotic War. Moreover, Stalin had the NKVD punish and deport minority ethnic groups within the Soviet Empire, accusing them of treachery and or collabor collaboration with the enemy. Thousands such as Chechens, Ingush, Tartars, and Turks were deported to the gulags and the wastelands of Siberia. As the war came to an end, NKVD units cleared captured territory of enemies and Soviet citizens who had collaborated with the enemy. The NKGB also helped to establish secret police services across Eastern Europe in league with their local Communist Party. This force was used to gather intelligence and to eliminate local opponents helping to establish communist satellite states in Eastern Europe. Outside of Europe, the most successful attacks on German targets was in Argentina. After the outbreak of the war, the German merchant navy was unable to run the gauntlet of the, of the Royal Navy in the Atlantic, so they took refuge in Argentinian ports. Therefore, between the beginning of 1942 and the summer of 1944, the NKVD launched over 150 incendiary attacks against German, Spanish, and Portuguese cargo ships by NKVD agents based in Argentina. If you recall, Spain and Portugal had been pro-Axis states. Unlike the British, the NKVD was never able to break the German Enigma Code and were dependent on the British for information about German intentions and movements. The main intelligence network inside of Germany, the famed Red Orchestra, sent messages to their Soviet handlers via shortwave radios. However, these musicians were gradually hunted down as the Germans used radio direction devices to track down their locations. By the end of 1942, the orchestra ceased to exist. The NKVD's greatest success during this period, though, wasn't against the Axis, but against their erstwhile allies, the United States and Great Britain. In both Great Britain and America, Soviet intelligence penetrated the highest levels of government. 
1939, the British Communist Party, with the help of the GRU, set up a unit called Group 10 to collect information for the GRU on the British military. The Soviet intelligence collected a great amount of information from the British. Beyond the Cambridge Five, the GRU recruited Klaus Fawkes, a naturalized refugee who had fled Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Fawkes was a committed Stalinist who was later recruited to the Manhattan Project and passed atomic secrets to the Soviets. The Soviets nurtured the local communist parties for intelligence sources and agents, and the American Communist Party was no different. Many had joined in the 1930s because of the Great Depression and the Marxist fight against fascism. Although any American communist would have been proud to be chosen to a spy for the Soviet Union, only a few were selected. Only a limited number had the skills or the job that interested the NKVD. Many worked in sensitive government agencies. These people were not the dregs of society or free-loving liberals either. They were intelligent, often highly educated and sophisticated. They were willing to spy for the Soviet Union, the majority of whom had never seen. Their loyalty to the Soviet Union was manifested through their membership in the party, and they considered themselves a part of a global communist movement. By April 1941, the Soviets had 221 agents operating in the United States. The Soviets had several paid informants in defense-related industries, while many of the, quote, believers rose steadily up the ranks in the Roosevelt administration. Although there was a small number of communist scientists, engineers, and technicians who were devoted to the cause. These minor sources provided extremely important pieces of information that together with larger sources gave the Soviets insights into American technological, industrial, economic, and political plans and objectives. For example, one minor source, codenamed Buck, became the deputy director of the UN Relief Fund and passed U.S. economic data to the Soviets, along with the U.S. forthcoming agenda at the Potsdam Conference. The Roosevelt administration was heavily infiltrated by Soviet intelligence. Harry Hopkins, one of FDR's closest advisors and, and the architect of the New Deal and WPA, was sympathetic to both the Soviets and the American Communist Party and was caught by the FBI passing sensitive information to the American Communist Party, who invariably passed it on to the NKVD. FDR's ambassador to Germany, William Dodd's daughter, became a spy for the Soviet Union, providing them with classified information from the United States and from German sources she slept with in order to gain access to that information. She also, along with her later American husband, were convicted of espionage in 1957, but were able to escape by immigrating to the Soviet Union. Another recruit from the 1930s was Elger Hiss. Born into a prominent Baltimore family, he was intelligent and good-looking. He excelled at John Hopkins University and at Harvard Law School, where he became a protege of later Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter. Through him, he was able to get a clerkship with Oliver Wendell Holmes. By this time, Hess had married Priscilla Franzler, who would be his assistant, uh, helping him in espionage activities by retaping State Department documents. In 1936, Hess had gotten a position as Assistant Secretary of State, but was secretly a member of the American Communist Party. During this time, he met Whitaker Chambers, who worked as Hiss's courier, uh, bringing documents between Hiss and the American Communist Party. Chambers' life was far more troubled. His father was a drunk, uh, but Chambers, from his earliest days, was an excellent linguist and writer. In the 1920s, he attended Columbia College, but dropped out of college to lead a bohemian existence in and around New York City for several years until joining the American Communist Party in the mid-1920s. Hiss and Chambers became very close friends, and during the summer of 1935, Chambers even lived in an apartment he rented from Hiss. Hiss even gave Chambers a car and several years later gave him a loan to buy a new car. 
By late 1937, Chambers became disillusioned and stopped working for the GRU. If you recall, this was a period of Stalin's Great Purge, and Chambers had been summoned to Moscow. He feared that if he did travel to Moscow, he would never return. He turned himself into the FBI in 1938, and he went into protective custody. The FBI didn't have enough information, though, to build a case against Hiss, and they only had the word of Chambers. Nevertheless, with the defection of Elizabeth Bentley and the Viona documents, they could corroborate what he had told them. Chambers would go on to testify against Hiss, and Hiss would be sentenced to 10 years in prison on perjury counts in 1950, although he would only serve three years. Another high-ranking American Soviet spy was the Harvard economist Harry Dexter White. White was a New Deal economist, assistant secretary to the treasurer, and he was the senior American representative at Bretton Woods Conference. He helped to bring into place the IMF and the, the, World, the World Bank. To give a current-day comparison, imagine if Larry Summers was a Russian spy. He, was n he not only spied for the Soviet Union, but he sought to shape critical U.S. economic policies in obedience to Moscow's orders. Influencing policy, though, is very dangerous for a spy. By intervening actively in policy decisions, a spy, a spy may call attention to himself by accident. By 1943, classified documents sent back to Moscow via its New York consulate had increased from 59 in 1942 to 211 by 1943. The Soviets also received a lucky break in April 1943 when an unknown woman who refused to give her identity walked into the Soviet consulate and delivered a letter containing classified information on the atomic weapons program. A month later, the woman returned with additional information on plutonium research. NKVD research discovered she was an Italian nurse, Lucia, the daughter of an anti-fascist union leader. The information was from her brother-in-law, an American scientist working on plutonium research for the DuPont company. Soviet intelligence quickly organized additional resources to learn more about this atomic bomb project. The Rosenbergs, members of the American Communist Party who had been recruited by the NKVD, helped to recruit a 26-year-old electrical engineer who worked on the Manhattan Project. In November 1944, another young physicist was recruited, Ted Hall, who was inspired by the worker-peasant movement of the Soviet Union. Hall believed that an American monopoly on nuclear weapons was too dangerous. Therefore, passing the bomb to the Soviets would not only help the Soviet Union, but the world in general, he believed. Another big Soviet intelligence target was Robert Oppenheimer, the scientific head of the Manhattan Project. From what we can gather, Oppenheimer was not a member of the American Communist Party, unlike his wife, who was a party member, and her former husband, who was a high-ranking member, who was a high-ranking party member, who had died in the Spanish Civil War. Oppenheimer had also given a sizable contribution to the Spanish Republic during the Spanish Civil War of about $2,000, or about $33,000 in today's money. He hoped that the U.S. and Soviet Union might be able to cooperate but refused to provide technical information to the Soviet Union when approached to do so and reported the incident to the Army Intelligence and FBI in 1943. The FBI and Army had known that Oppenheimer was associating with communists, though, since they had started watching him in 1941. Oppenheimer would later lose his security clearance in 1954 given his contacts with the American Communist Party and its known involvement with espionage. The FBI, however, cleared his name in 1995, declaring they had no evidence that he was involved in espionage against the United States. Nevertheless, in 1996, former KGB sources and Pravda still argued that Oppenheimer had cooperated with the Soviets. Another scientific source for Soviet intelligence was Albert Einstein. 
It was common knowledge, especially in Berlin, that Einstein sympathized with the Soviet Union, and he was friends with Klaus Fuchs. Einstein was also friendly with several members of the Soviet embassy in Berlin. Per NKGB records, up to 1944, it had acquired 1,167 documents on nuclear research, of which 88 from the United States and 79 from the British were judged to be of critical importance. Thanks chiefly to Hall and Fawkes, the first Soviet atomic bomb would be an almost exact copy of the American bomb detonated just four years earlier. The penetration of the Manhattan Project was a larger part of a more general surge of Soviet intelligence gathering in the United States during 1944 and 1945. The amount of microfilm sent from New York back to Moscow had grown from 600 in 1944 to 1,896 in 1945. The Soviets were interested in more than the atomic bomb, though. Soviet agents were busily engaged in stealing information around avionics, radar, sonar, and proximity fuses, not including information on diplomatic, military, and political developments within the United States. The Soviets also penetrated the Overseas Service, or OSS, the predecessor to the CIA. 3,000 American communists had served in the Spanish Civil War, and about 1,200 returned home after the war. Wild Bill Donovan, head of the OSS, saw them as a recruiting pool for the new OSS. Donovan saw the communists as allies against Hitler and is rumored to have said, quote, If I thought we'd win the war quicker, I would recruit Joe Stalin for the OSS, close quote. When called before HUAC, he, of course, lied about his knowledge of communists and the organization, not wanting to ruin his reputation or that of the OSS. The prevailing view among many American leaders at that time was to fight one war at a time. There was moreover a division of opinion about what policies to adopt towards the Soviet Union once the war was over. The Soviet leadership, as we have seen, didn't take that view and was already preparing for the next potential war after the defeat of the Axis powers. Soviet intelligence on the OSS helped them in eliminating pro-democratic forces in Eastern Europe who had cooperated with the Americans and British during World War II. All of this information gave Stalin an edge in negotiations at Tehran in 1943 and at Yalta and Potsdam in 1945. Existing Soviet intelligence was enhanced at Yalta as the American and British delegations were housed in bugged buildings monitored by the NKGB. Moreover, Alger Hess, a Soviet source, had even gotten himself included in the American delegation. After the death of Roosevelt, Soviet intelligence was aware that they had lost a significant ally in FDR. It was FDR who had diplomatically recognized the Soviet Union in 1933. Truman was far less pro-Soviet and, had a, stru and a struggle was ensuing around him between pro-Soviet New Deal Democrats like former Vice President Henry Wallace and anti-Soviets like Forrestal who sympathized with the British. Wallace actively met with the NKVD station chief in Washington to discuss U.S. politics. Although it appears that Wallace never passed any sensitive information to the Soviets, it was out of the ordinary. I'm sure you can imagine the political firestorm if Trump or Clinton met with the FSB station chief to talk American politics. Therefore, in this new Cold War, the United States became the primary focus of Soviet intelligence, followed by Great Britain and France. France had been a major base of NKVD operations in the late 1930s. However, with the French defeat in 1940, the scope of operations was reduced. The NKVD did, however, establish strong ties with the French Communist Party and the resistance movement. During the war, there were two main groups of Soviet agents, one in Paris with about 50 agents and another in Toulouse. After the end of the war, 
uh, the NKGB in France had a much greater range of movement than in Britain or the United States. In November 1944, Soviet intelligence was ordered to rebuild its ties with old sources and to recruit new ones and the new Fourth Republic. In 1945, the Paris Residency sent some 1,123 reports back to Moscow. By 1947, they were reporting some 2,627 to Moscow, well over double. However, with the dismissal of the French communists from power in 1947, it it made it difficult to further penetrate French bureaucracy. These problems were compounded by French internal security, which had noticed the Soviet operations. By 1949, the number of reports dropped to 923. Of those, only 20% were judged important enough to be passed on to the Central Committee. Despite this Soviet success, Soviet luck started to run out. In September 1945, Igor Zuzonsko, a GRU cipher clerk at the Soviet embassy in Ottawa, stuffed more than 100 classified documents in his shirt and attempted to defect. Zuzonko enjoyed his life in Canada and did not want to return to the Soviet Union when he was ordered to do so. But when he attempted to defect to the Ottawa Ministry of Justice, they told him to come back the next day. By that night, the Soviets realized that the documents were missing and that Igor was trying to defect. He quickly hid himself and his family with a neighbor as the NKGB broke down his door looking for him. It was almost midnight before local police came to his rescue. Another big loss for Soviet intelligence was the defection of Elizabeth Bentley. Born in 1908 into an upper-middle-class Republican New England family, she was a bright student and won a scholarship to Vassar College, the most elite women's college in the country. After graduating in 1930 with a degree in languages, French and Italian, she began to teach at a girls' finishing school in Virginia. There, she decided to enroll in graduate school and attended at Columbia, a huge accomplishment for a woman of that era. In 1933, she won a fellowship to the University of Florence in Italy. However, she neglected her studies and began an active party life, which included a lot of drinking and hooking up with different guys. She even slept with her faculty advisor, who helped her pass and complete her thesis, which was accepted by Columbia, and she returned to New York in 1933. Back in New York, she struggled to find a new job in the midst of the Great Depression and grew increasingly disillusioned with her life. A neighbor introduced her to the American League Against Fascism, which was a front for the American Communist Party. She soon made many friends and became heavily involved joining the American Communist Party herself, attending party meetings several times a week and taking classes on Marxism. By 1938, Bentley held several short-term jobs with periods of unemployment. However, Columbia's university placement office had found her a job for a clerical position at the Italian Library of Information, a propaganda bureau for for the fascist Italian government. She immediately went to her party leaders and volunteered to be a spy inside the institution. She began to work with Jacob Gulas, a former Russian citizen and Bolshevik. He had immigrated to the U.S. in 1910 and worked closely with the NKVD to run sources and work as a courier. Bentley was quickly fired, though, from her job in 1939 when the library learned about her ties to the American Communist Party. However, she continued to work with Gulas, making mail drops, or the process by which she dropped or she dropped or picked up money and or documents from sources or and or agents at predetermined locations. Golis and Bentley soon became lovers, but Golis's health started to fail. In 1943, he turned over many of his responsibilities to her and died later that year of a heart attack. Bentley immediately assumed his role and the links uh, between his sources and the NKVD. 
1944, however, the United States had a large consignment of NKVD agents, and they regarded Bentley as an amateur. Beria, the head of the NKVD, also felt that using local communist parties represented a security threat. What he failed to understand was how much access the locals gave the NKVD or their unquestioning belief in the communist cause. So Bentley was sidelined and paid a reward and promised a future assignment. Those missions never came, and she became distraught. Lonely, bored, and drinking to excess, she became disillusioned with the Soviet Union and communism. She also believed that the FBI was tracking her down. However, the FBI knew nothing about her, and they were surprised when she turned herself in in August 1945. The FBI could corroborate much of what she told them, and they believed her. However, she lacked any hard evidence like documents which could stand up in a court of law. Nevertheless, she did give the FBI the identity of many Soviet agents and sources. The FBI contacted these businesses and government agencies where these sources worked, warning them of the danger. These agencies and companies soon found reasons to let these people go or had them reassigned where they couldn't cause any damage. By the end of 1947, most were gone, and by 1950, the rest were fired. In 1948, the FBI and the Justice Department let Bentley go to go public with her story as she testified before the HUAC committee. Many of the people Bentley would identify in her testimony would plead the fifth. For decades, Bentley was attacked by liberal historians and journalists as a fraud and mentally ill alcoholic. Unfortunately, she died in 1963, not living long enough for the release of the Viona Papers and the archival documents from the Soviet Union, which corroborated much of what she claimed. She had, after all, told the truth. The defections of both Igor and Elizabeth Bentley confirmed the center's worst fears. In September, J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, reported to the White House and Congress on the activities and numbers of Soviet spy operations. Nevertheless, Viona was kept a secret. It appears Truman never knew of Viona and that the CIA wasn't informed until 1952. Although, given the extensive infiltration by Soviet intelligence into the U.S. government, they probably didn't want the Soviets to find out they had deciphered their code. However, Soviet intelligence quickly did discover that their code had been broken, but Viona represented invisible time bombs to the Soviets. They had no means of knowing which messages had been decoded or which agents would be compromised by them. Moreover, with the beginning of the Second Red Scare, more news would come out or come to light about their spying activities, and it would be harder for them and the American Communist Party to operate. By 1948, the American FBI was actively hunting down their agents and sources and establishing permanent surveillance of them. The defections of Igor and Elizabeth Bentley also alerted the public to the presence of Soviet agents and stoked the flames of what would become the Second Red Scare. Soviet intelligence during this period brought a critical balance to the Cold War. The Soviets had critical insights on American political and military moves, whereas the U.S. had no comparable insights into the motives or moves of the Soviet Union. Soviet intelligence also neutralized American technological development and the atomic bomb during this period. Any American technological lead was short-lived because as soon as the U.S. developed the technology, it was stolen. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. Check out our next episode on December the 1st, where we'll be examining the Soviet atomic bomb program. What did the Soviet atomic bomb program look like, and what did getting the bomb mean for the Soviet Union? Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let your friends know about us. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history but still want to help us, give us a positive review on iTunes or the whatever platform you prefer. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution in supporting the show, please go through our Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com 
One word, any donation size is accepted and appreciated. And if you have a moment, fill out our survey there uh, to help us bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.